turning this evening to the first letter to Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And I'd like, uh, before we go to a series to spend a single study this evening on the calling of preachers. And it's uh, something which we should visit from time to time and rarely do. And what I propose doing is looking at the calling of the preacher, the preaching ministry, and some of its duties and obligations as we find them only in the pastorals, looking at a number of scriptures in First and in Second Timothy this evening. So here is Paul speaking of himself in chapter 1 and verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'll look in an expository manner at these uh, verses, and the apostle begins at once by accrediting Christ for his call to the ministry. It is a personal call to him, a personal placing into the ministry, and one to which he is indebted to the eternal Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. And look at the language that he uses. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, we would say today, um, empowered me. That's the literal sense. <clears throat> He's been given his boldness and his vigor. He may have had some of this naturally even before, but now he is given a measure with which to minister. It's given to him uh, by grace, his discovery of the gospel and the new life, but more, it's imparted by Christ. It comes with the commission, this uh, vigor and strength which he needed. And he grew, became prematurely aged, old, and still carrying on in a way that needed great vigor and forcefulness. There were times he picked himself up from the ground where he'd been virtually dead and regarded as such, and he needed tremendous vigor and courage with the amount of persecution against him lifelong. Was that natural? No, it was given. And that's what he means here, compounding, including all these things. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful. Now, various expositors have made different things of this, being counted or regarded, as accounted, we might say, as faithful. But what is clearly implied is that the Apostle Paul had a period of, well, trial. He first had to be proved in some way when he was first converted 
and he went about preaching and he sought to join himself with believers and to serve the Lord and to make Christ known. But there was a period of trial before he was brought down properly to his work. And so he counsels under inspiration that all who are appointed to be elders, preachers, whatever, are first proved to be faithful. And I think these words refer to that. For that he counted me faithful by the grace of God, I was proved as loyal and trustworthy, putting me into the ministry. That's not just a way of saying appointed. It's more graphic than that. The ministry, the service, is something into which he is placed. And he uses this language frequently, the ministry. He speaks of ministers. Interestingly, in the Greek, it is the deacon word that is used, which comes originally from the idea of running errands, quite menial service. But it came to mean something much more, particularly as it's used in the New Testament scriptures, putting me into the ministry. You see the ministry here as an entity, like a, a military corps, into the corps of ministers worldwide, preachers. You can be in that company or not in that company. It is a defined entity putting me into the ministry, the service. What's distinctive about ministry as the apostle uses it here? Well, it is the service of the word. And it is also the service of the Lord. And it is the service of the church in that kind of order. You're in service. You are a servant of the word. That's your duty, to minister that. The Lord, accountable to him, and also to the church where you have been placed to serve. The ministry. So I call you to look at the apostles' rich language. This is a curious office. It is at one time, one and the same time, a very lowly office. There are so many passages, and we'll look at some of them hastily tonight, which show the humility of the minister, the lowly place of the minister, the uh, humble and modest position that a minister occupies, the limited support that he will generally get, and we'll prove and establish that in the scripture. And yet at the same time, there is something without parallel in terms of nobility about it. It is described by the apostle as a noble calling, a good work. But the King James word good, translated in 1 Timothy 3, means noble. Similarly, when the apostle Paul says, I have fought the good fight, for good you must read noble 
That's what it means. I have fought the noble fight. There's no nobler, more honourable, no higher task than the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. At one and the same time, it is lowly, and yet it is noble. And we're going to explore that a little also. So here is the ministry. The minister is a prophet, but prophets are no more, and it would be misleading to use the term, but he's the New Testament equivalent of a prophet. The Lord Jesus Christ calls New Testament ministers prophets in a very loose manner, not because that's the term we're taught to use in the rest of the New Testament, but you see there is a a similarity. There is an equivalence in that he's a herald, he's a preacher, he's a shepherd, a pastor. He is all these things. And he's called by Christ directly. There is a call. And we're going to see in the texts before us that the call is twofold. There is an inner call And then there is a ratifying, authenticating outer call must come also, agreeing with that inner call, from the church, from the people of God. And there must be certain other things that ratify the call also that we'll mention, within, without, and even additionally. So we're introduced to the thinking in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, a call from him who hath enabled, empowered me, counted me faithful as a proving before the call is certain, putting me into the service of the Lord and his word and a church. Now look down to chapter 2 and verse 4. And uh, we see this taken a little further. We'll read the... I'm I'm coming down to verse 7, but we'll read from verse 4. It's important to do so. It refers to the Saviour who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. This is the context of what's going to be said. The universal tender of salvation. This is what this is about. For there is one God, verse 5, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So it's about the tender of salvation, Christ in particular, the one mediator. Verse 6, the preaching of his ransom for all. That's not a literal all. That refers to all nationalities, People throughout the world, the only way to be saved is through Christ. To be testified in due time throughout the gospel age, he will be the testimony of what follows. Verse 7, whereunto I am ordained a preacher. Well, he goes on to say also, and an apostle. But it's just the preacher bit. He distinguishes 
between his work as a preacher and his work as an apostle. He is both, but he's a preacher. He's ordained a preacher. Most modern versions simply translate that as appointed a preacher, and you can certainly do that. But the original is a bit more cumbersome than that, and it's, uh, the word that is used in the Greek has to do with kneeling or lying. Now, or lying down, that is, prostrates. And it shows where the word ap- translated appointment has come from. It's come from the idea of somebody who's receiving a very special commission from perhaps a commander-in-chief who will kneel or lie down, signifying his complete commitment and dedication, acquiescence to the commission, to the core. Now, that isn't necessarily still in the word, but that's how the word evolved. It is very useful in this passage to see that the graphics behind the word in the word ordained. Certainly true of the Apostle Paul, as you know, who was struck to the ground. And throughout his conversion and his call, you can see him almost as prostrate. One who was completely succumbed and yielded himself to the call of God. And it's good to have that in mind in verse 7. Whereunto I am ordained. If God brings me into the preaching ministry, I come on my knees. I come prostrate before him. I come yielding my whole self. It's not a matter of will you do such and such. Yes, I'll do that. I'll do my best. It's a matter of having a call so noble, so significant, so important, it doesn't give me any special authority, it doesn't give me any special status, it doesn't give me special privileges on earth. Everything is in glory. But it is of such importance, and everything, almost everything I do, could have eternal significance in lives, in the church. So to have such a calling... I am prostrate before him. I am along on the ground. I will obey. I am not remotely fit. I need all the enabling. I will preach the gospel and preach the gospel and preach the gospel until I drop. Ordained. Something which is enacted on your knees. Prostrate on the ground. That's the idea behind the word. I think it should still be there, not just, I was appointed. It's stronger than that. Whereunto I am ordained, says Paul, a preacher. And then he proceeds. I wanted to read that verse. Now looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the first two verses. This is a true saying, a faithful saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, 
He desireth a good work. You see, the word good understates the issue. A noble work. Now it's true, this passage speaks of uh, elders, both ruling elders, as they're called, and teaching elders, if you like. It includes elders who are preachers, and elders who are not necessarily preachers, but are otherwise involved in great responsibility in the leadership of the church. But we're taking the part of it which refers to the preacher. If a man desire the office of a bishop, doesn't sound right. To desire the office of an elder or a preacher? Ah, oh, but it is right, you see, because it's referring to the inner call, something that God gives. Oh, I could be mistaken with feeling this, but there comes a time in my life when I would long to be preaching the gospel. If I could be doing that and seeking after souls and teaching the word and leading people and showing Christ, that's a very worthy desire. Of course it's a desire that many people may have who God will not necessarily call. So it's got to be authenticated, however, and proved. Nevertheless, if a man desire the office of a bishop. The scripture begins by assuming that the person will have an inner sense of call. And this particularly is true of the preaching ministry. He desires a noble work. No one's going to call him noble. No one's going to be asked to view him as noble. He's going to be commanded in these passages to live humbly as a man and to set an example of humility and do things by friendship wherever he can. But nevertheless, it's a noble work. And the people of God reflect this dual attitude. They do not want a hero worship, a preacher or a pastor. They do not want to lavish uh, material benefits upon him. But they do hold the office of ministry in great regard. And they pray for the minister. And they encourage the minister. And they watch for him. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a noble work. Here are his qualifications then. I'm not going to go through them all because I think they're well known to you and fairly obvious to you. But uh, among them in verse 2, he is to be apt to teach. Apt to teach. How do we define that? Well, he must be reasonably fluent and he must be somebody who can see how to engage his listener. Some people are fluent but cannot engage the listener. It's quite interesting 
as the years go by, sometimes to be sitting behind a speaker on a platform. And in certain situations, first one speaker and then another will come to the platform. And one speaker will be doing tolerably well and the listeners, the congregation, are obviously uh, concentrating hard to follow. And then another speaker will come along and suddenly everybody seems to want to be listening. Oh, that's the man who is apt to teach. There's something natural about it. And there are many people have that kind of level of fluency where they know how to present things to make them interesting. You like listening to them in personal conversation. There's an extra spark there. We're particularly watching out for that. Apt to teach. There's a special faculty or ability there. But that's not alone. I know people who are apt to teach, but they would flounder badly with some of these other qualifications of good behavior. And so you could go down, patient, not covetous, with gravity, and so on. And on it goes. And for the qualifications of the pastor. But I'm rushing tonight, and I'm going to chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 6. Here are interesting words. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, the Apostle Paul has been mentioning various truths, thou shalt be a good minister. We see the word again, servant of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Timothy had a qualification in the estimation of the Apostle Paul, he had attained a standard of knowledge, a level of knowledge, in the words, the exhortations of faith and good doctrine. He understood the doctrines. He'd attained that understanding. So there's another qualification for the preaching ministry. He had that most clearly. And down in verse 7, he had discernment. He could refuse profane and old wives' tales. He had in verse 8 a worship sensitivity. The word godliness is used. Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness. Do you know the meaning of the word godliness? I'm often mentioning this it isn't a synonym for holiness. It particularly means respect for God. It refers to worship. For godliness, a worshipful spirit and demeanor, one who knows how to reverence God adequately and properly. As an awful lot of Christ professing Christians these days do not know how to reverence God. 
That's where the contemporary Christian worship movement comes from. A complete inability to know how to reverence God. Godliness is one of the qualifications for ministry down there in chapter 4. And then I can go down to verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. Oh, but a preacher is what? A proclaimer. One who proclaims the gospel word and proclaims Christ. What else is he? Says the Apostle Paul. Oh, this is daunting. He's an example. He's an example. Be thou an example of the believers in word, in the way you speak, in conversation. Greek, that means behavior, toing and froing, in charity in outgoing love, in spirits, in your spirits. You attribute everything to God. You see the Lord's hand in all things that happen. In faith, you trust him, even in the darkest hours, in purity and holiness and chastity. You're an example. What are we candidating for if we're coming forward for the ministry? Preaching, yes. Example. Are we ready to strive with all our might that we might be an example? Then there are some other duties of ministry which the apostle adds. Verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading. Ah, but there's a very special word used in the Greek for reading here, which is always used to refer to public reading. What the Apostle is referring to here is that Timothy, Timothy should give special attention to the public reading of the Scripture. Have you ever attended a worship service and there wasn't one reading of the scripture. I have. And it was, believe it or not, in a reformed church. Have you attended services in churches where there's been only one reading of the scripture? Well, that's a great shame. Give attention to the public reading of the scripture. There is a tremendous ministry in the public reading of the scripture, the manner and the way in which it is done. To exhortation. So much of the ministry is exhortation. Much of it is teaching. Much of it is gospel. But much of it is exhortation. No exhortation, the whole purpose of the scripture falls. I'm no longer a servant of the word, if I don't exhort. This is emphasized so much by the Apostle Paul. 
I could name to you some very famous names. One man, I won't give you the name, died only a couple of years ago. He was very famous online for his doctrinal lectures and so on, very well known, and as a reformed theologian, ran a big conference, never, 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 so far as I could ascertain, exhorted anyone. You could have gone to his church, to his meetings, and to his conference for years. You could have had innumerable sins and misunderstandings. He would never have laid a finger on any of them. He didn't do that. He didn't apply these things. He didn't believe in naming your sin. He preached the doctrines. And people didn't notice what was going on. They said, he's wonderful. And so he was as a doctrinal lecturer. He's marvellous. We admired him. But he didn't count before God as a preacher. You see why I'm not naming names? Because there wasn't any exhortation, which is the whole purpose of expounding the word. And the apostle puts it here. Give attention to public reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And then these mysterious words of chapter 4, verse 14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Whatever is that gift. And you look at the passage and you say, was it Timothy's gift of preaching? Was it Timothy's gift of exposition? Was it Timothy's gift of this or of that? Well, no, you say. It can't refer to that because that surely isn't given by prophecy and by, by the laying on of hands at your ordination. That isn't imparted to you like that. So what could it refer to? There's only one thing it can refer to, which can be, so to speak, imparted at the commissioning service when there may or may not be laying on of hands. It's the commission to preach the gospel. It's God-given. It's the most precious gift of all the commission, the task of preaching day in, day out, week in, week out, the saving gospel of Christ. Now that, in a sense, is solemnly imparted, not literally imparted, but it is in the service of ordination imparted which was given thee, you were authorized, you were commissioned by the church with the laying on of the hands of the elders. Meditate upon these things. Think of your calling. Don't let it escape you. Stir it up. Give yourself wholly to it, entirely to it, when I came here, 52, 
years ago, it was obvious to my wife and to me that coming here, you would have to give yourself entirely to the work, long term. This grand building was in some senses a shell of a place. You could say it was like a tomb. It was vast. It was even bigger before we built the wall. And there were about 45 people worshipping in it. And they were very elderly, mostly in their 80s. It was in a very poor way. And there wasn't any money. And the total Sunday offering wouldn't have paid a winter fuel bill for the week. And the treasurer of the church and the auditors had said the church would have to close. It would be a long-term thing. And very, very difficult and it was a matter, and so some wise soul, some older pastor said to me, do you know you're going to have to just give yourself to that cause and live or die there? But you can't think of leaving after two or three months or two or three years if you believe the promise of God is over the tabernacle and the prayers of the elderly folk who are there, the remnant, are to be answered, then you've got to commit yourself there until the tide turns and the people come in and a congregation is built up and people are saved and a witness is carried on. Well, he was right, it was obvious. But then he said to me, let's live in the land of fancy. All sorts of things will happen. Maybe the representatives of a big American church will come to you and say, come to us. Here are the wonderful terms. You're not even to think of it. No overtures, nothing. Wherever they come from, however difficult the going is. That's what it means to be wholly committed. And my wife before me, whether she was right or wrong in, to do this, but my wife before me said, we will do that. <laughs> Friends, that's exactly what you're reading of here. Verse 15 of chapter 4 Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself. Examine yourself every day and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Well, time is up. I'm not very far through, dear friends. The duty of example, that's here. Very quickly, chapter 5, verse 1. Look at the humility you've, you've got to 
pray for. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. Don't lord it, the scripture says elsewhere. Don't bully, don't command. Do things humbly. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity, and so on. One at the same time, you're going to be poor, you're never going to be rich, not unless you pastor an American megachurch and disobey the scriptures and ignore the Lord when he says, the servant is not greater than his Lord, nor the one who is sent greater than him that sent him. We're under a command to live reasonably and modestly, to build up the church without taking too much charge, only our needs. That's your calling. That's the ministry. A lowly calling, yet the most noble of all callings. Both things are true. And I close, really, I won't go to Second Timothy. I close with First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What has this to do with the minister? Verse 11, But thou, Timothy, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Run from them as far as you can. That's not said to you businessmen. You have to be very careful. That's not said to every Christian, but it's said to Timothy, the prototype pastor, flee these things. Do you see a rich pastor? He knows better than the Lord. How can he minister to all his members who would be rich? if he himself is rich. He has no moral authority in his ministry. We could explore that at some length, but I'm going to close. You know, the promises of God are upon the ministry. I read a couple of verses of Psalm 126. They that sow in tears, says the psalmist, shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaths with him. There's a wonderful pair of verses in Watts's versification of that psalm, and I just read them to you as we come to conclusion. 
Though gospel seed lies long in dust, our prayerful hopes remain that living word can ne'er be lost nor ever preached in vain. Let all who so in longing wait till thy sure blessings come, for soon shall we, with sheaves so great, return rejoicing home. When I was 20, friends, hope you don't mind a personal note, uh, but uh, 20 years of age and in national service, in the services for the compulsory two years we all did in those days. Uh, I preached a number of times, but I got to one particular town where I would be stationed for a year. And there was one church to which uh, I was recommended in the town. It wasn't the only evangelical church, but it was really just a little mission. And uh, the superintendent of that little mission, who was a carpenter, but he did this in his spare time, well, he asked me if I would uh, share the pulpit with him and he would preach one week and I would preach the other. And I was overwhelmed at the time. When I first went to the little church, uh, I, I didn't see the inside at first, he was outside waiting for me and conducted me down a side path. It was a single-story hall, not very large, and I remember sitting in a little triangular vestry, which was just chopped off the front corner of the church, separated from the church by a tall, dark, varnished matchwood wall, just single boarding. The other side of that matchwood wall was an ancient harmonium which would play and the wall would vibrate and tremble in sympathy with it. Uh, well, you knew when it was time to go in because the, the wall shuddered and coming through the wall was turn your eyes upon Jesus. And that was the moment you opened the door and went in. The room was packed, about 50 people in this small hall. And I looked round quickly before going to prayer, and most of them were old enough to be my grandmother. There was only one man, and that was the superintendent, Mr. Crisp. And everyone else, all ladies. And there were a handful who were rather younger, old enough to be my mother. But were they listeners to a fledgling young preacher? What a hearing they gave you. And uh, they were so warm. Of course... Many had, were hard of hearing, so you really had to speak up. And you know, the old analogue decades of those days weren't awfully good. So you spoke so that they could hear, and you spoke to stay above the feedback that came back to you from a crowd of elderly ladies. 
was quite a lot of noise. Anyway, uh, but after the service, every week, they were so warm and you would get so much thanks and so many kind remarks. Culture's changed a lot, you know. Those were the days when you, people used to thank the preacher and very, very warmly. But there were quite a few ladies who would say to me, it's best of all when you preach the gospel because they would whisper, some of our company are not saved. So we want the gospel. So I preached the gospel. I wonder, I have no idea whether any were saved or some were saved or many were saved through that preaching. I didn't have any insight. But certainly at the end of time, when we go into the reception room of the kingdom of God, the vast reception hall, it may well be in accordance with the promise of Psalm 126 that there'll be some of those old souls there to greet me. Who knows? Will I recognize them? Oh, you'd think, of course not. They were faces in a small crowd. 63 years has gone by. Ah, but with the glorious faculties of the soul given to us when we go to glory, the amazing thing is, I no doubt will recognize them. And not only them, but all the people who encouraged me to go on preaching the gospel to them. Because, you know, if you can't be a prophet, if you can't be a proclaimer, a preacher of the gospel, you can get exactly the same reward by being the supporter of a prophet, the encourager of a prophet, the helper of a prophet. That's why we're all engaged in some shape or form in the service of the Lord. If you can't be a prophet, you can still have a prophet's reward. Here's a glorious text for you. It's in Matthew 10. The words of the Lord. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. May there be some here who are called to that noble task of preaching the everlasting gospel. 
And may there be even more who get the prophet's reward by their encouragement and their helping labours and their support. So just a few thoughts on the ministry of the word and the office of the ministry.